of two messages in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we find ourselves today at the end of chapter 23. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Or uh, if you're using a smartphone, you can just open that app up. And we're in chapter 23, the last few verses, starting at verse 50. Uh, and if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Reading uh, from the ESV translation. Uh, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not considered, consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us ask his blessing on our time. So, Father, we come to you once again acknowledging our weakness and our inability, uh, Lord, to serve you. I thank you for your immense grace that you showed on yesterday. And, Father, I ask that you would show grace again. I know, Lord, that we have uh, nothing to hold over you, nothing to bargain with. Simply, Lord, we reflect upon your character and your kindness and ask that you would, by your spirit, that he would move uh, in our hearts and speak to us, Lord. Uh, encourage those who need encouragement, Lord. Perhaps insight for those who might uh, need it to look at things a different way and see things from a new perspective. I pray that this time will be productive and fruitful. And I thank you for the testimony that's already gone forth about the good news through the singing of the word, uh, Lord. And I pray, Father, that through the preaching of the word, I might join up with them uh, as we testify about Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So I remember, at least for me, in my mind, I don't have total recall like uh, uh, the 10 people in the world that they found that do, but I, I do vaguely remember, I think it was a sunny day uh, because it was the last day of my freshman year of high school. Uh, and I still, still remember that day. And I, as I was preparing what was then my teenage mind for the summer and I was thinking about what summer was going to be like, uh, things took a, a turn that I did not expect. My mother showed up at the school, my younger sister, to pick me up. Uh, which was extremely unusual and uncharacteristic of her because she worked on the other side of the city of Houston, which was about 45 minutes to an hour away. Uh, and she would never pick me up from school because I always rode the bus home every day, which took me about a about 45 minute ride to get to, to my house uh, in a different section of Houston from the high school uh, that I was at. And so on this particular day, she showed up early to get me, have me released from class at the end of the day. It's the last day we were getting out. Uh, when I got in the car as we drove off, my mother then informed me while she was there. Uh, my paternal grandfather had passed a few hours earlier. And so we headed off to the location where my dad was at and my relatives had gathered uh, to mourn the loss of my grandfather. Uh, a few weeks later, a few days later at least, uh, I remember that uh, my next memory at least was that we were, I was in a suit and tie uh, I was in an old country church, small country wooden church. Perhaps some of you have been there. Uh, and I was sitting, I remember sitting on the pew. It was one of those long, hard, wooden benches uh, in that country church. And my dad conducted the services uh, and did the eulogy for my grandfather. 
Uh, and the reason why this memory stands out to me in my mind, uh, not only is it because of the significance of the fact that my grandfather passed away, and you know, now that I've gotten older, I, you know, there are, I really wish that I could have had more time to get to know him, uh, because I, there's lots of questions I would have wanted to ask him about his life, because he lived a pretty full life. Um, but the reason why this memory stands out in my mind was because in all of the memories that I have, out of all the years that I've, I have lived and have in, interacted with my father, uh, it's the only memory I have in my entire life of ever seeing my father shed tears. Uh, and it was on that day while he was doing the eulogy that my dad, in the midst of the eulogy, began to just break down uh, and shed tears in the midst of while he was giving the message uh, as it related to my grandfather's time. Uh, looking back now on that event as an adult, uh, I realized why most likely my father was shedding tears uh, at that service and in those moments. Uh, five years earlier in my grandfather's life, he had suffered a severe stroke, which left him without the ability to use the left side of his body. And so as a result, he had to have intensive care, which my father rendered to him over those five years. And in taking care of him uh, for those years after coming for work, it was some really long nights because my dad would work all day uh, at the IRS, and then at, at nights he would go and spend hours taking care of my grandfather. And then sometimes when we took vacations, if something happened to my grandfather, we would leave vacation, and my dad would have to fly back from wherever we were at to get back and take care of my grandfather and then come back and join us. So and throughout that time, uh, you know how it is with parents and children, sometimes over the years, relationships can break down. Well, it was through that intensive care uh, and them being together so much and so intimately that uh, they had a chance to mend all those relational fences. And so as a result of that, I could understand my dad and why he was weeping because here was a relationship that had began to blossom. Uh, the past hurts had been dealt with. And now the person that he loved and looked up to his father, uh, they were starting to really grow really close together. And death interrupted that and brought that relationship to a sudden end. And I think the finality of that realization uh, touched my dad at the very core of his being. I think in those moments he realized that there was nothing that he was going to be able to do to change the reality of the situation. And that all he was going to be able to do was simply at that service, bid his father farewell. From this perspective, that is, the way we live human life and experience it as humans, it seems to us from our perspective of this event that, that death ends human life. It's no wonder that the psalmist, when reflecting on this from this perspective, wrote these words. I believe it was David who said this. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life, Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Uh, it was a teacher of wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes as uh, the, the, the author opens up and allows the teacher to, to share wisdom about life and reflecting on this, this, this undeniable reality that all humans face, that the teacher of wisdom spoke and said this to the living in light of that reality. Uh, he said this, it is better to go to a funeral than a feast, for, for death is the destiny of every person, and the living should take this to heart. Tragically, we were reminded of this, uh, the truthfulness of the, what the teacher said so many years ago, and the events that unfolded on I-83 uh, at the exit that I take home almost every day on Route 22. 
Uh, it is in light of these things that many have then adopted an attitude towards life that might be similar to the attitude that is reported by Ray Comfort in his book of what George Clooney said about life and his attitude, and others have, have adopted this attitude. George Clooney said this. He says, I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't know if I believe in God. All I know that as an individual, I won't allow this life, the only thing I know to exist, to be wasted. Do you agree with Mr. Clooney? Now, is that the way you're living your life? And before you say, well, hey, I don't necessarily agree with that, I'm not talking about your theology from your intellectual standpoint. I'm not talking about that theology that you have, that you voice to others because that's what's acceptable. I'm talking about your practical theology. I'm talking about the theology that you live on every day, what you really believe and what you live out. Is that how you live your life? Well, to some degree, I will admit that I do agree with Mr. Clooney. I agree the fact that life should not be wasted by anyone. Although I would say that I beg to think that our two definitions most likely are very different about what it means for life to be wasted. And him, in light of the context in which he was speaking, most likely life for him being wasted would have been interpreted in the sense of being able to not get enjoyment out of life, not take advantage of all the opportunities that you have to, to have as much as you can or get as much as you can out of life. Whereas I'm not thinking along those lines, wasted for me, I'm thinking more in terms of what John Piper was referring to in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. So the question then becomes for us, which view is correct? Well, the definition of wasted will be determined by whether or not death is the absolute end for humans. So is death the absolute end? Well, the Population Reference Bureau, who has done work in trying to estimate about how many people have lived on planet Earth, and it seems like, I think here in October recently, that we reached the 7 billion mark. If you take that population into account, they have estimated that uh, if they look at all of history and take an evolutionary standpoint view about things, that probably around 107 billion people have lived on planet Earth. And so if we minus the current living population from those deceased, that seems like that then there have been a hundred billion people who died. And so when you look at that evidence, it would seem like, well, hey, look, the evidence is pretty conclusive. Uh, there's one side to this story. All the evidence is laying on that side. End of story. We know how to define it. Or is it? Is there more to the story that needs to be taken into account than simply the deaths? of a hundred billion people. Well, today we find that answer in Luke's narrative as he recounts for us the events that surround the life, the death of Jesus Christ. Remember the text last week we covered uh, from Pastor Mike's message, uh, the death of Jesus. Uh, it was around 3 p.m. on a Friday when Jesus expired. That is, his life was given up. Uh, he died very quickly for one who was crucified. And knowing that the Sabbath was approaching quickly, we're introduced to another figure, an unexpected man who pops up into the scene because we remember it was the Jewish leaders, that religious ruling class that had pressed for Jesus' execution. But we find out that not everyone who was a part of the council believes that Jesus could be executed. One such person we find in the text, his name is Joseph. Uh, he is a Jewish man and he's part of the religious council. And he uses his political influence, uh, his connections, uh, his uh, wealth to be able to uh, have audience with Pilate 
so that he could have Jesus' body released into his custody. And the text tells us why this is happening, because unlike uh, of the majority of other council members, he stood in the minority. That is, that he did not consent to the decision to have Jesus executed. He didn't agree with the rest. He did not believe that Jesus should be executed. He had respect for Jesus. He was a closet follower of Jesus. We find from the text, after he had removed the swollen, disfigured, lifeless body of, of Jesus from the cross, that there is a, another council member, not in this text, but in John's gospel, he lets us know that there was another part of that minority party, uh, Nicodemus. You remember him from John chapter 3. He had went to talk to Jesus by night. Well, he's also there, and he ends up bringing spices to help uh, Joseph, his fellow council member, to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Now, they're working in a limited time frame because uh, Sabbath is pressing in on them. Uh, Jesus has died late in the afternoon. They have a very small window in which to work, and so they must do the job quickly. Most likely, as soon as Jesus expired, Joseph went directly to Pilate, and because of his uh, position in society, he was able to have audience with Pilate, and he uses that to get Jesus' body. And, and we find out that the, the women who had followed Jesus down from Galilee, who had watched these horrific events and stood out faithfully by the cross, see what's happening, what Joseph and Nicodemus are doing, and they follow them to the tomb where Jesus' body it's prepared, it's washed, uh, it's anointed with spices, it's, it's wrapped up, and it's placed in uh, a new tomb, one that is cut out of rock. Now, normally this was unusual because normally when a person had been crucified, because you brought shame to your family, uh, most times victims of crucifixion were just simply taken from the cross and thrown into a large pit of bodies with all the other crucified victims who have been uh, executed that way. But here, uh, Jesus receives a, a noble burial, a, a king's burial, as he is put in a tomb that's hewn out by rock. Now, what's interesting about that is that uh, he was not putting shame to his family because he wasn't buried in his family tomb, but Joseph had intervened to bring nobility to Jesus in his death. The women have followed, they have watched because they realize the process has been hurried, and the women who love Jesus do like women today. They want to make sure that all the details are taken care of. Sometimes we as men miss those details, but the women, they don't miss them. And so they know the, the, the process. They see what the men are trying to do. And to, to ensure the process, they, they realize it's been hurried. The process needs to be finished. They don't have time to do it today. So they go home back to where they've been residing in Jerusalem because they've come down from Galilee. And they say, hey, listen, let's get together everything ready so that on Sunday we can go and prepare his body. Now, someone might ask, why didn't they go then on Saturday evening since Sabbath would have ended at sundown on Saturday? Well, because they didn't have modern lights. It would have been dark, and unfortunately, they wouldn't have had some street lamps to help them get there. So it was most likely best for them. Darkness would have prevented them to go on Sunday morning when the sun started to, to shine. We find out in the text that everyone in the text, Luke wants us to know, is a faithful Jew. The women are faithful Jews. How do we know that? Because in obedience to God's command found in Deuteronomy, they rest on the Sabbath. They do what God has commanded. The Sabbath, excuse me, the Sabbath passes, and it seems, it says first dawn, most likely this time of year uh, in that part of the world, the sun will usually arise about 6 a.m., so it's probably around 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. The women have been waiting uh, to get back and to serve Jesus 
in this way. And so as soon as the light dawns over the horizon, the women gather, they get all of the spices and ointments together, and they head back to the very location they had just been about 36 hours earlier. They go to that tomb, and the purpose is clear. They need to finish the burial process by anointing Jesus' body with the spices and ointments that they had gathered. Notice what the text says here. That they're fully expecting to find a dead Jesus whose body has started the decomposition process. And perhaps because of the spices, they might be able to smell some of the stench from that. And so they want to anoint his body to cover that up. They're not expecting anything other than Jesus to be dead. But when they, when they arrive at the tomb, things are not how they expect. Someone has disturbed the tomb. Return with me to the text. We'll find that in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 24. There we find this testimony. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found that stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So the women, it's early Sunday sometime right after about 6 a.m., the sun is just rising over, painting the sky in those beautiful colors. The women arrive at the tomb uh, in the morning, and the first thing they notice is that the, the stone that had been rolled to enclose the entrance of the tomb from Friday has been moved. Uh, it, it has been disturbed. Something's not right. And so as a result of that, this requires further inspection. And so the women enter the tomb to see what's going on. They notice that the body of Jesus is gone, although the linen garments remain. Please notice what the text says. It says the women were perplexed. They're not sure what has happened to the body of Jesus. The first, the first thought most likely, as alluded to by another gospel, is theft. Uh, in ancient times, there were known to have um, graves robbed, and people would rob graves, and they think perhaps most likely this is what's going on. The women are not looking for a supernatural explanation. They have no, uh, no belief or thought that Jesus is alive. That's the furthest thing from their mind. They fully expect that Jesus is still dead, just like everyone else. Human experience, they have buried relatives before. They know how the process works. They've been through this before. They expect that the same thing is happening with Jesus. He's fully dead. They get to the tomb. When they show up at the tomb, the tomb has been disturbed. Jesus' body's there. They're most likely thinking Jesus is alive. They're most likely thinking somebody's taking his body. And the question is, who would have taken 
Jesus' body? Who would have done this awful thing to our master? Who would desecrate his tomb like this? They're not looking for anything supernatural. Uh, they're saying, my human experience tells me that the reasonable explanation is that someone has taken the body. It's only when these two men in dazzling apparel appear that they began to redefine for them what they should be considering about the events and the data that they have in front of them. Uh, it's only these two men who redirect uh, what the women are thinking because for them, this is not even a part of their considerations. The first thing that the men do is to challenge their expectations. They say to them, in essence, ladies, have you considered the fact that you're looking in the wrong place? Why are you looking in the wrong place? Because uh, living people don't reside in tombs. Uh, I don't know anyone who uh, is, is alive that has said, hey, I'm going to go and take up residence down here at the local graveyard. That's where I'll be staying. No, only dead people live in tombs. And the angels then challenge them to say, perhaps it's not that the body has been stolen. It's not that Jesus is dead. But the fact is you're looking in the wrong place because he's not dead. He's alive. He's neither been stolen nor dead. Jesus lives. They receive good news from the tomb. Then the second thing the angels do is say, let me remind you of what Jesus taught you when you were in Galilee. I know you've forgotten it. I know you didn't think much of it. You didn't understand what he was talking about when he told you this sequence of events, and he laid this out on more than one occasion, but you didn't believe him because you had never experienced or seen anything like this before. And so for you, you probably thought Jesus was speaking metaphorically when he talked about rising from the dead. Who knew what that meant? We had never seen anything like that. So who could believe in something like that? He's just probably using another one of those uh, metaphors that teachers like to use. And so the women are thinking like that. And they say, but think back to what Jesus told you. He told you how the events would unfold. And it, they then remind them of that. And it's that then at that moment when the angels remind them of what Jesus taught, that the light dawns and they realize what the data actually means, that what they're dealing with is not a dead Jesus but a living Jesus. And what do the women do? Well, what anyone should do when they receive good news, they go and tell someone else. And so what do the women do? These wonderful women who have just had this heavenly encounter with two men who have appeared in dazzling clothes, who redefine reality for them as it pertains to the person of Jesus of Nazareth who was dead and they expected fully to be dead, but now they have heard from a heavenly messengers that, hey, look, he's not dead. He's alive. So what do they do? They go back to where they were staying, where everyone else had gathered, uh, the 11 along with all the others who had come, the disciples of Jesus that were there, and they began to share what they were experiencing. Uh, they share with the 11. They share with the rest, most likely telling the events, hey, we went, we showed up looking for Jesus. It looked like somebody stole the body. We were thinking that, and then these two guys just showed up out of nowhere, told us that Jesus was alive. This is all what was going on. Please notice what the text says. They threw a praise party at that moment. They started saying, hallelujah, praise to God. Wonderful. This is great news. No, please notice what the text says. It actually says that they are met with utter skepticism. The men in the room, perhaps because they didn't accept women's testimonies or because it was just too hard to believe this idea of resurrection from the dead, they regard what the women say despite all the talk about angels as useless chatter. 
I can imagine the scene playing out like this if I were to imagine it. They're there in their own culture and the women come in and they're like, look, let me tell you what happened. We have all these witnesses and all these multiple women are telling them what's happening and the, and the guys are like, okay, yeah, I know it's hard, sister. I'm sad too. I wish Jesus was alive. Why don't you sit down right here next to me, right here. Come on, sit down, sit down right here. Let's, let's weep together. Come on, let's weep together. I know it's hard. We all want Jesus to be alive again. He's dead. Let it go. Let it go. Just come on. Relax yourself. I know that the grief is getting to you. Y'all, y'all are over. You got worked up. You got worked up. Calm down. Come on. Sit down right here next to me. We're going to help you grieve too. I'm crying. You crying. Let's just cry together. Everybody, let's cry together. That's most likely what's happening. They, they, they do not believe that Jesus is coming back from the dead. They've experienced death coming back. They saw it happen during Jesus' ministry. But always, whenever a prophet of God had arisen in some of the Old Testament narratives, there was always a prophet present to raise that person from the dead. But there's no one present. No one has ever heard of someone coming back on their own. He would have to be able to, as they told him on the cross, physician, heal yourself. After hearing the women, there's still one in the room, though, who's somewhat hesitant to just dismiss it so quickly. You know who he is, Peter. Now, Peter had just, you know, you could understand why he doesn't just give up on the sayings because he had just had an experience with Jesus like this just like a couple days ago. Like, you remember a couple days ago, he was there, he was talking, he told Jesus, look, Lord, I'm with you all the way. All these other guys, they may bail on you, but not me. I'm with you to the end. And Jesus looked at him and said to him, Peter, before the night's over, before 24 hours is up, brother, you're going to act like you don't even know me. <laughs> Peter was like, no, Lord, you're wrong on that one. I know me. I'm going to do me. You do you. We're going to be good. And then what did he find out? Jesus knew him better than he knew himself. So he hears this word. He, he knows not to at least dismiss it right away because he's been wrong when it comes to Jesus before. So what does Peter do? Well, he, he responds quickly. He gets up. He runs out. I imagine he was the first person to leave. John's gospel tells us that John was present as well. But he runs to the tomb. When he gets to the tomb, he finds it just like the women say. The body of Jesus is missing. But the text tells us something interesting about Peter. He sees the same data that they see. What does Peter do? He does not walk away in faith saying, yes, Jesus is written. He walks away still perplexed. He's not sure what has happened to Jesus. He's not necessarily at the place of faith here. He's not yet let go of his doubt. He, he's still skeptical, highly skeptical. He's just thinking, eh, maybe. He, he doesn't believe. He's still harboring doubt. Now, you could probably understand psychologically and emotionally why this would have been hard. Not only had nothing like this had ever happened in history, and so it's kind of hard to get your mind wrapped around someone coming back from the dead, but also think about the emotional toll. You had been following someone for a number of years. You believed that they were the one that God had promised. You, you had seen God work mighty things through them. You had seen some unusual things like this guy walking on water, him making food, doing stuff that only God could do, him talking about forgiving sin, stuff that only God should be doing. And you think to yourself, we got the right guy. And then you get to Jerusalem and they do to him just like they've done with others. They kill him. And now you said. <laughs> Man, I got it wrong again. 
I thought he was going to be the one, but he's dead now. And just like other great leaders in the past, once death happens, the movement was over. And now I was trying to, to grapple with this idea that, that I had been following him, thinking he was the right guy, thinking this was the right way, and now he's dead, the movement is gone, and what do we do? How are we going to go on with life? And the women are saying he's alive. I don't know that I can open that door just yet. I don't know that I can believe that. I don't want to be let down again. I don't want to be disappointed again. I don't want to be fooled again. I believed him, and he failed me. He's dead. What ends up overcoming this immense skepticism? See, the first disciples, they didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, though he had told them that. They weren't even expecting it. It was nowhere on their radar. He had told them the sequence of events on multiple occasions. It was too far away from any reality they had ever known or experienced. They don't believe that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. They're not even expecting it. They're not looking for it. They're met with, it's met with utter, utter doubt. How does Jesus resolve the great doubt and skepticism that his own followers have at first? They don't believe he's alive. The text tells us, as, as will be laid out next week in next week's message, he appears to them and reappears to them and reappears to them giving them physical evidence, letting them handle him, letting him touch them, talking to them, showing them, giving them proof after proof after proof until their hearts believe. He proves to them that he, the same Jesus who died is the same Jesus who is now alive. That's how he overcomes their skepticism of their belief in the resurrection. And that's why, because of their testimony that they have laid down for us, that has been passed down to us all these generations, that we find out, because of what Luke has recorded about Jesus, that death is not the end of the story. That's why this is so marvelous, because Jesus, although he did physically die and experience what all humans experience, he overcame death through resurrection. And his resurrection changes everything. Now, what do I mean by resurrection? By resurrection, I'm not referring to resuscitation as in the case of Jesus' ministry when he brought, brought back Jairus' daughter. You know, uh, Jesus was on the way to the house. The guy's daughter was sick. The, 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 the servants came and said to him, hey, look, stop bothering Jesus. She's dead. The deal is done. Jesus goes to the house, goes in and says to her, little girl, get up or wake up. She gets up and she comes back to life. There was a funeral with the widow of Nain. Uh, she was, they were taking the son out on the, on the funeral bridal, carrying him out mourning, and Jesus stops the funeral, and he's like, wait, we're not going to have any more of this. Let's turn this into a celebration. Young man, get up. The young man gets up. He's alive, goes on to take care of his mother. Lazarus, you remember what happened to him. Good friend of Jesus, Mary and Martha's home, their brother, uh, he dies. Jesus had waited intentionally because he was sick, and he waited until he died. And they were like, Jesus, if you had come a couple of days earlier, we could have fixed this. But you just showed up all late and stuff intentionally, and now he's dead. And Jesus said, yeah, we got it. All right, let's go to the tomb. He gets to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus is revived. Now, what's interesting about all of them is this. They all have something in common. They did all come back to life after experiencing death. But you know what happened? Perhaps uh, the daughter of Jairus grew up and married and had her own children and became a grandmother herself. 
Perhaps uh, the, the, the widow's son went on to take care of his mother and live many more years and start his own family, have his own children. And perhaps Lazarus went on. But you know what happened in all of their lives? They died again. Not so with Jesus. In his resurrection, his body was transformed. Expert and scholar N.T. Wright explains resurrection this way. He says, in both paganism and Judaism, resurrection refers to the reversal, the undoing, the conquest of death and its effects. Resurrection, in other words, means being given back one's body or perhaps God creating a new similar body sometime after death. Now, the early Christian belief in resurrection had a much more precise shape and content than anything we find in Judaism. In early Christianity, resurrection is this act or will be an act and was an act for Jesus, an act of new creation accomplished by the Holy Spirit and the body which is to be has already been planned by God. This will not be simple return to the same sort of body as before, nor will it be an abandonment of embodiedness in order to enjoy, as some in ancient times thought, a disembodied bliss. It will involve transformation the gift of a new body with different properties. And that's what happened to Jesus and why his resurrection is so different. Whatever his body was, was transformed into the new glorified body. God had reached into history and started the process of the new creation that God is ultimately going to do one day for all of us and all of creation, which it is groaning and waiting on right now. Well, some may say, well, does it really matter if Jesus was raised from the dead? I mean, you know, that's so hard to believe. I mean, we're talking about human experience here. I mean, look at all the evidence. You know, so many people have died. Nobody's come back. I mean, it's, uh, this whole idea, you know, I, I mean, isn't it okay if we just have his teachings and that enough? Well, Paul addresses that. Paul says this about if Jesus has not been raised to the church of Corinth. He says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul says, listen, this is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. The entire Christian faith rests on the fact that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. If Jesus did not get up from the dead as we are telling you that he did, then all of this, everything that is called Christianity is the biggest sham in history. And you've been wasting your entire time believing any of this stuff. If Jesus is not raised from the, Christ from the dead, then Christianity is false. And you should not be following. You probably should convert to Judaism. Instead, but because Christ has been raised, then what we preach is true. And Christianity is the right way because Jesus lives. And because of that, we have hope 
for the future. And that is the reason why when we share the gospel, we must not stop at the cross. Simply saying that Jesus died for our sins, we must continue with the good news to say the one who died is also the one whom God has intervened in human history to raise to prove that he is the Messiah. Because how could someone who's dead save you? Only someone who's alive can do that. Now, some of you say, okay, I'm with you on that, but let's get down to the physicality of all this. Now, look, I have a loved one, and when they passed away, we had them cremated. And so now you're trying to tell me that all that's left of my loved one is dust. And you're telling me God's going to get all that back together and create a new body for them? All right, brother, you're going a little bit far on the edge. Maybe you need some medication. <laughs> so I offer to you two things. First, I offer to you Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So I would say to you, check God's resume. He's worked with dust before. <laughs> two, Jesus, in talking about the limitations of humans and limitations of God, tells us that there is not the same limitations on God that there is on humans. Jesus talked about this when he was talking about salvation. The disciples were struggling with this whole idea of a rich person who was following the law and how God seemed like they were blessed. And he talks about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're like, look, if the rich who seem to be blessed by God can't get in the kingdom, then who can get in the kingdom in God? And Jesus said this to them. He said this. He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's the same thing that God had told Moses many years ago. Just because humans have limitations, don't try to apply those limitations to God. He doesn't have them. He's not in the same category as human beings. What then are the implications for us? A few. There are many more, but let me give you a few. Because Jesus lives, death is not the end of the story. God has in the person of Jesus demonstrated his power to raise the dead physically and bring them back. So then we know because he's already done it, we can have hope that when he has promised to us new life and a new body, that he's already shown I can do that, he'll do it again with us. It means that everyone who we've loved, who died in Christ, who is gone, we know that we're going to have a reunion with them because God is going to bring them back with Christ and call them back to life again. Because, it lived, because Jesus lives, because of what Paul says, it means that, yes, your faith is in the right place. There are a lot of alternatives in this world, brothers and sisters, a lot of things that people are offering you to believe. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, it means that Christianity and Jesus is the only road that will get you to God. Because Jesus lives, it means also that when you asked Jesus, when you brought to him the skeleton that were in your closet and you said, Lord, I really didn't show all this to everybody else, but I want to show it to you. This is all the stuff. Can you deal with all that? And he said, yeah, you're forgiven. I've dealt with that. It really means that it has been dealt with. Your record is clean. You've been truly forgiven. Because Jesus means, lives, it means that unlike others who have made the claim of Messiah, he actually is the Messiah. Why? Because others die. They're dead. But Jesus lives. And so it shows and proves that God has chosen him as the Messiah. And that's why we can boldly proclaim this good news to others. Because Jesus lives, the way I choose to live now really does matter 
for the future. As the, the, the New Testament lays out, it says we're no longer to live to please ourselves, but now we're to live to please him who died and was raised for us. We're to live just like he lived. And how did he live his life? He lived his life simply to do the will of God. Because Jesus lived, he redefines what it means to have a wasted life. Because his body, he was bodily resurrected from the dead, it means that the body that you have matters and what you do with it matters in the service of God. N.T. Wright notes it this way when he says, The point of the resurrection is is that the present bodily life is not valueless because it will die. What you do with your body in the presence matters because God has a great future for it in store. What you do in the presence, whether that's painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poetry, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. Because Jesus lives, it means that everything that he taught is true. All those hard teachings about loving your enemy, not being a gossip, not about judging others wrongly or unjustly, about being merciful, all those hard things for us, those things really are true. And we need to take them to heart. Because like the Hebrew says, because Jesus lives, he's able to intercede with God on our behalf. And that means that when we have needs, we can go to him and he's actually able to answer because he's there to actually hear the requests and then to provide the solution to them. And because Jesus lives, when we come to trust in what God has done in history by raising Jesus bodily from the dead, he will do for us what he did for the apostles. And that is not only will he change our circumstances, he will change our lives as well. Consider the testimony of the life of Peter, what he was like before Jesus was raised and the radical change in his life of what he was like after he encountered the resurrected Christ. Look at how Paul approaches death, different than the psalmist, how that view has changed in light of the resurrection. Paul writes this when he's facing death at the end of his life, when he writes his son Timothy in the ministry. He says to him, for I am already poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Paul had confidence in resurrection from the dead because he had known and seen that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. There was a story told uh, through Rabbi Zechariah's ministry about a, a gentleman that was back in the early 1900s who was part of the Russian Communist Party. His name was Nikolai Ivanovich Bukharin, and he was part of the party. He had helped with one of the newspapers and part of the political party that kind of set the policy making for the Communist Party. Uh, as a matter of fact, they say his works on economics uh, and society, that is on political science, are still being studied today. Well, back in the 1930s, the day he had taken a trip from Moscow to Kiev to to have a speech with a group of people there, and he wanted to talk about atheism. And so he he had a large auditorium. There were a a lot of people there, and so he took an hour to level every charge and every level against Christianity to, to disprove Christianity and talk about the good of atheism. And so he had done this wonderful speech, and it seemed like all faith had been destroyed in the room. 
And he came to the to end of his speech, uh, and the, the audience was silent in light of this great orator as he had spoken and brought all these proofs against Christianity. And so he opened up the floor and he said, are there any questions in light of what I've just presented to you? And so no one spoke. Finally, uh, an older gentleman got up from his chair. He went up to the lectern, took a position behind the lectern, paused for a moment, and he simply greeted the congregation that had gathered with the Russian Orthodox Church's greeting. He simply said, these words, Christ is risen. And something strange happened in the room. In unison, everyone stood up in the room and they responded as they had been taught. He is risen indeed. Brothers and sisters, though people will wail and give arguments against everything else and against the Christian faith, and some of those arguments are hard and difficult and we struggle with them and we have to deal with them, but despite all the arguments that are raised against Christianity, this one fact of history cannot be changed. And that is this, and this is what all of our faith rests upon. It is the reality that no matter what people say, the reality is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's why our faith is not in vain. And so, brothers and sisters, that's why we gather in this place. That's why we give away our money. That's why we support missions. And that's why we die to ourselves and obedient to, to God's commands, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that's why we gather in this place and we sing love songs to someone we love because he lives and he hears. It. And that's why we sing things like what we're about to sing in a moment. Jesus, Messiah, name above all all names. Why is it? Because he's the only one out of those, let's say, 100 billion or 107 billion who's ever come back from the dead. And that's why we worship him and not some other. So brothers and sisters, I say to you, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the truth uh, of the word. Lord, I thank you that our faith is not in vain. And though we have been offered many things in this life, many ways to live, but because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we know we're heading in the right direction. And so, Father, I pray that, Lord, as we live this week, we would embrace that reality that perhaps we have forgotten it or not thought about it deeply recently. Let us embrace it. We are following one who has gone into death and who has come back. And because he has done that, he can bring us back as well. And one day, all of us who have faith in him, because he already said it, Lord Jesus, you said it when you're here. You said one day, everyone who's in the grave, who's trusted in you, you will call us by name and we will come forth and we will live again. And we thank you for that hope, which helps us live in this dark and hard world at times and gives us hope even when we face trials. We bless you and thank you for the great hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song?